iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo, technology, what is it all about? If Trump gets back into office, he's never leaving. I don't see any way that the Constitution's prohibition on a third presidential term is actually enforceable with this man and his crowd taking office. It's um, they are what they are. They're very thuggish, very criminal. So I think the consequences of them getting back into office are, are catastrophic in a way that we're still only beginning to deal with. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson. And man, after my little speed bump last week, we've got a good one for you this week. So longtime listeners may recall that some years ago we had on Dimitri Melhorn, who is the founder of an organization called Investing in Us which is a totally fascinating group. So it was set up right after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. And Dimitri set it up with Reid Hoffman, the LinkedIn billionaire. Dimitri is a political strategist. They got together and the idea was to put hundreds of millions of dollars of Hoffman's dollars into political startups that could help Democrat causes and Dimitri is kind of the point man running this whole operation. The whole point of this operation was to get Donald Trump out of the White House and to keep him out. So they invested in advocacy organizations, startup media companies, electoral strategy groups, voter outreach groups, like dozens and dozens and dozens of companies. You get the idea. Many of them using technology, using AI to target swing voters, to get the word out, etc. In any event, I want to have him on because, well, it's 2024, and somehow we're entering America's wild election season where it is, yeah, we're here. It's going to be Trump versus Biden again, only this time we have the onslaught of AI technologies that make it super easy to fake audio, video, pictures, and do it on a mass scale and effectively almost for free. Anyhow, scary times for democracy, for America, for democracies around the world. There's going to be something like 70 elections this year across the globe. Um, Something like north of 2 billion people are going to be affected by elections this year. And they're all fighting those kind of same forces. And Dimitri is really right at the forefront of this intersection of using tech and tech millions to influence elections. So given we are where we are, I thought we'd have him on to give us a rundown of how 2024 is shaping up, why it's going to come down to like 
the thinnest of margins. What we should be worried about, what we shouldn't be worried about, and how the rise of AI fits into the political scene. Trust me, you are going to enjoy this. You're going to get a lot out of it. I promise you. So I'm now going to hand you over to my conversation with Dimitri Melhorn of Investing in Us. Enjoy. You were on the pod a few years ago. Much has changed since then. It's now 2024, which is insane. When I spoke with you last, was it before or after election day? I believe it was after election day. Got it. So it was during that weird interregnum before January 6th. Got it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So totally. It was almost exactly four years ago, right? <laughs> or three and some, three and some anyway. And we're at this weird place where, you know, Trump with 91 felony charges is the nominee unless some kind of legal boulder falls out of the sky and squashes him. That's not going to happen. Like he's the nominee unless he shuffles off this mortal coil. Do you think that's the bottom line? I do not see a way for him to not be the nominee. The Republican Party is too broken. I mean, it's not 0%. The betting markets, I think, give Governor Haley, like, I don't know, a one in 20 chance or something. But like that might include some mortality issues. And, you know, it also possibly includes the possibility of uh, like a Captain Queeg moment, you know, where he just breaks under all the pressure. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Yeah. Be great. (laughs) (laughs) So before we kind of dive in, for those who uh, weren't listening all those years ago, can you just briefly describe who you are and what you do? My name is Dimitri Melhorn. And since Donald Trump was elected, I have viewed it as my full-time responsibility to reduce his odds of a second term. And in that, I formed a group, we call ourselves Investing in Us, with uh, my friend Reed Hoffman and a bunch of other folks uh, to try to invest in civil society uh, in such a way as to resist Trumpism. And when you say invest in civil society, and obviously Reed is a as a technologist, et cetera, it's, is that via the form of things like voter registration apps and things like this to kind of try to stack the deck as much in the in in your favor as possible well (laughs) that last little line sort of changes the characterization (laughs) i would say unstacking the deck unstacking Uh, (laughs) you know like registering more people in a structural democracy does seem like unstacking the deck yes so the the broad outline of our approach is to take anything we know from scale entrepreneurialism and scale venture capital and apply that to the job of reducing the odds of a Trump reelect. Now, when we first did that work together from early 2017 onwards, the focus was on helping the Democratic Party ecosystem improve its efficacy. Right. right? So Democrats in 2016 spent a lot of money on things that didn't help and maybe even hurt. Obviously, they did a lot of things right, but a lot of things wrong. And so our experience looking at the history was that it takes, once a party loses the White House, it typically takes them eight years to learn enough on the outside and scale enough on the outside to retake the White House. So you see whether it's Jimmy Carter or George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, like it's outsiders consistently who come in with a new set of tactics to win. And usually it takes about eight years out of power for that to form. Our goal was to use venture capital to accelerate that process and 
helped the Democratic Party oust Trump after four years. We thought that might be enough, but come to find out, we faced the same threat, and now yeah. it's eight years later almost. So the question is, what can we do with the things we learned, some of the unexplored avenues to try to make sure that Trump doesn't get back into the White House? Before we get into the nitty gritty of that, can you give a sense of kind of what you have done in terms of like companies or organizations you have backed, how much money you have put to work, things that have kind of, you know, you guys have helped to kind of bring to life? So a lot of the organizations that are going to be absolutely critical to determining this election. It will be a very, very close election. And a lot of the organizations that will be critical to determining the outcome of that election are organizations that did not exist in 2016. Right. So that's always kind of a healthy indicator of like how much of your you know stock market is filled with companies that didn't exist that long ago. This particular portfolio of investments is very new, a lot of new energy, a lot of new ideas. And an example of one that we were supportive of over a, a period of time, and it's very easy to talk about, is an organization called Push Black. Push Black. One word. Push Black. Okay. All right. So Push Black is a media company, and it is a media company that serves Black American audiences okay. with content that they like, primarily over various messenger platforms, like on Facebook Messenger. And the number of human beings who have said affirmatively, I would like more of this content is in the many millions wow. of human beings who said, I want more. And the content, I don't know if this is still true, but at one point, their most widely consumed piece of content was a long read on the history of okra. And their most successful product, if I'm recalling correctly, was something about today in black history. And so it was content that reached black audiences where they were, right? Mm -hmm. And this content transitions naturally into election content when everybody's paying attention to the election, right? After Labor Day. Right. And at that point, it provides its members with tools to find your own poll location, send your friends their poll locations. You know, here's a social pressure message you can send to your friends, et cetera. And Push Black is a media company organization, but it is also year-round organizing in Black communities. Like the cost of year-round organizing physically, in-person, human, all over the battleground states is so extraordinarily high. Yeah. But the cost of this, it's not, it's not cheap, but it is so much less expensive. And it is just a, probably 10 times as effective at mobilizing black turnout as pre-existing organizations. And it's the sort of thing that you find. And so our approach, we, looked, we started in 2017 with the House of Delegates elections. We, we monitored all 100 races in Virginia for the Virginia House of Delegates and invested in them because we wanted to see what happened in actual elections. We had a hypothesis that we had to look at actual elections, not leading indicators like polling, because those were too tainted right. and suspect. So 2017, we invested. And then in 2018, we invested and monitored across the 100 closest battleground races for Congress. So it was 2017 was kind of the control group. Let's ana analyze what happens in real time. That is a clever way of thinking about it, but we actually had a control and a treatment in each cycle. So 2017 was the first cycle. I see. So there were 100 races and the treatments varied across races. 
Okay. And there were more than 100 precincts. There were all kinds of candidates and there were all kinds of learnings that were tested. And we learned a lot. The things that seemed to work best in that environment, and look, it's a weird environment. It's an off-off yeah. cycle. The turnout parameters are bizarre. But things that worked there, you tried to scale the very best tactics and ideas in the 2018 congressional battlegrounds, which are much higher turnout elections with mm -hmm. much higher spending and therefore much higher salience, right? So in those elections, you can start to get a sense of what are the things that really work at scale and can work in a sort of high stakes election? Now, some of the ideas that really were promising in 2018 never fully scaled in 2020 because they were in person and 2020 had COVID. Right, of course, of course, yeah. Right, so, but in any event, uh, a lot of those ideas and, you know, those ideas probably would have spun off into whatever, you know, some of them would have lived on, some of them might not have. But with Trump reemerging as a threat, and with that becoming increasingly clear for years now, we are now back in the effort of trying to help them scale and work together and really influence this next presidential outcome. And so are we talking like dozens of companies and organizations you guys have backed or helped get, get off the ground? Are there some kind of headline figures you could give just to give people a sense? Yeah, so it is far more than dozens. Early on, it was a little bit almost like uh, sort of angel investing, just sprinkling yeah. things around. Yeah, yeah. Organizations that we are actively raising money for now at scale, it's probably a dozen that we're actively raising money for, mm -hmm. uh, consistent with our strategy. And there's another two or three dozen that are not solely focused on our strategy, but we endorse because they're good for other reasons, right? So if someone is focused on long-term anti-fascism, and they want to give money to, for example, Greg Lucani off at FIRE, we would say that's not directly consistent with what we're doing, but that's important right now to do. And so right. there's there's several dozens that we endorse, and there's probably about a dozen that we are major investors in and actively trying to help them close their rounds. And this runs the gamut, presumably, from things like Push Black, which is like a media startup, so to speak, or voter registration apps or using AI to understand trends and how you target people? I'm, is it kind of that? Is it just a broad sweep of just doing a whole suite of attempts to try to kind of, as you say, unstack the deck? So broadly, you're understanding what I'm saying, but there are two things that are important to emphasize. One is we are partisan. Yeah. We have become partisan Democrats since roughly December of 2016. <laughs> Right. You know, as long as the Democrats are the party of fighting against what Trump represents, we are partisan Democrats. Right. So yep. the uh, civil society portfolio that we invest in includes super PACs as well as 501c4 entities. So, for example, one of the super PACs that we believe absolutely needs money is a super PAC called Future Forward USA. And this is a entity that was founded and organized without us. It was entirely out of open philanthropy and that crowd. And so they did what they did in 2020 without us. And they are critical. And we are actively encouraging people to give money to them. That's a super PAC and that's disclosed. And why are they, why are they so critical? What makes them the special snowflake? So let's step back and talk about the election. How much do yes. you feel like you understand about how the election will be decided? That's exactly where I was going to go. But just before we go there, just for our overseas listeners who don't understand what a super PAC is, basically because America, you can buy <laughs> our election rules mean that you can create these nonprofits that channel money to certain 
causes or candidates. It's a way around from just an, a candidate getting directly millions and millions and millions of dollars, but it's effectively the same thing. It's just a kind of a vehicle. Is that fair? Just so people yeah, understand. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, for your listeners in Europe and England and Britain and so forth, it's, it's so hard to imagine, but <laughs> we have a particular campaign finance system where like if you raise money in disclosed amounts with a uh, a cap, like they call these hard dollars in part because they're hard to raise, but they're hard in other ways too. Hard dollars, you can't give somebody more than I think it's $6,600 in a federal race. And you can use hard dollars for all kinds of things, for, for get out the vote, for privileged ads, et cetera. And then there's super PAC dollars where if someone discloses that they're giving a bunch of money to this thing and this thing promises not to coordinate with you as a candidate, they can spend infinite on you. And so this combination of things is out there. So many, many example, millions, tens we, of millions, like some of these super PACs. Hundreds are, of yeah, millions. Yeah. They will pro- in this in this election cycle, by which I mean total political expenditures in 2023 and 2024 across the United States of America, federal, state, and local, both parties, this two-year political cycle will probably $30 billion will be spent. You're kidding me. Nope. That's got to be a record. I mean, I know that includes kind of soup. No, it is a record. Yeah. It includes a lot. It includes a lot of things. It includes local, includes, but yeah, it is a record. And like, but it was probably about 20 billion last time. This includes like that's still what, a, what a massive increase. I mean, that's it's a big increase. It's a big increase, which gets to the point, And I don't know if the thing is a then, of course, B, which is it's going to be a very, very close election. And my understanding, and this is like super basic. I am not a political reporter, so you please correct me. But it's it could effectively come down if you look at America. You have the you know the blue states, the red states, and there's the kind of potentially purple states and those purple states could come down to ultimately a very small handful of counties and precincts when we're talking about a national election with maybe 150 million voters. You're talking about maybe 50 or 100 or 200,000 people that will decide this election. That may be a facile way to look at it. That's why I have heard people talk about that before, but please explain what, 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 is, what awaits us this year. <laughs> What you just described is almost exactly right. The only thing you got wrong is a trivial detail. The precinct never matters. Like, Mm. I could lose this precinct, but if I win the precincts next door by more than I'd expected, the net, you know, it's, it's the number of voters. But voting behaviors in this country are incredibly hardwired. Very few votes are available, meaning that they might actually change in some way, right? So there's not that many people who might or might not turn out. I mean, there are plenty, but not that many. Yeah. And there's not that many people who might vote for either major party candidate. There's some, and it matters, but not that many. The two major political parties, their assets are not identical, but they're equivalent. Right. So the two parties have incredible resources, including financial resources. Mutually assured destruction all, or mutually. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so because of that, like what will happen in 2024 is largely predictable. 90% of the votes that will be cast in 2024 will be the same people doing the same things they did in 2020. It's pre-baked. 
most of it, 90%. So because of that, you can know with near certainty what the swing states might be. And it's not a list longer than seven. You can right. make it smaller than seven, but you can say seven. Right. You can't say eight. And so if a state outside of those seven is genuinely going to go in a way that we don't currently predict, it is only because the election has tilted dramatically for some. Right. And it's Michigan, Wisconsin. Yeah. So the way to think about it is which were the closest by popular vote margin between the two parties. Right. Okay. So the closest three were within a single point, and that's Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. The next two were within two points, and that's Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Okay. And then the next two were within three points, and that's Nevada and Michigan. Got you. So that's it. Yep. Now, other things can matter in other ways, but that's it. The ones that are next closest, like the second district in Nebraska or whatever, are, are quite a bit not as close. And so within those seven states, there were 42 million eligible voters mm -hmm. in uh, 2020. It'll be about that actually in 2024 as well. And in 2020, there were 31 million votes cast. So okay. relatively high turnout. Yep. And the 31 million, slightly less than half a million went to third parties and 15.4 million went to Biden and 15.2 million went to Trump. And because of that, Biden beat Trump in those states 6-1, okay? Mm. Trump beat Clinton four years earlier in those states 6-1 the other way. So it, it was a wipeout because of these very small shifts in numbers. If you had switched 50,000 votes and instead of having them vote one way, have them vote yeah. the other, I don't remember exactly 50. It may have been 100, but I think it was even 50. That is enough to flip both 2016 and 2020. And in 2020, there were almost 160 million vote casts. So wow. this is very much a very small number of people who will be deciding everything for everybody, right? That's crazy. So this leads perfectly into, you know, it's a tech podcast. So how do you, we haven't even uttered the words artificial intelligence, which has got to be a record given what's hap been happening over the past year. That's right. I know, right? Look at us. Um, so how do you attack that when, when the margins are so fine? And I imagine both parties probably have a list of those those voters in question who have flip-flopped. You know, like, how should we, as kind of, you know, Joe Public be thinking about, like, what that looks like, what technology can and can't do? Like, how are you thinking about this? Because it does feel like, I mean, it's just, it feels like it's going to be a coin flip unless something dramatic happens. Yeah, it's a coin flip. So for Joe Public... Just some, some numbers in case they're useful. Yeah. So out of the 42 million eligible, there are probably two to three million variable turnout targets on the Democratic side, meaning people who would vote Biden against Trump may or may not show up. And then on the Republican side, there's probably about a half a million of those people, maybe a million. I mean, say a million just to be really expansive. So there you're talking about 4 million turnout targets. And then there's probably something like 4 million, maybe five swing voters in the middle. Okay. And the swing voters in the middle are incredibly valuable because each of them counts for two. Because one side's gain. If you gain someone, you also take a vote away from the other side. Exactly. If someone was going in there thinking they were going to vote for Trump and changes their mind and votes for Biden, I've now cost him a vote and gotten Biden a vote. Right. Yep. So. It's two. 
all of the plays are these very small numbers of people who are potentially influenceable, fewer than 10 million out of America's 320 million. And you know, you think about what are the different ways that technology and media can reach these people. And then something interesting happens. The political parties don't really know that much about these people. You're like, I'm sure the parties know who they are, but yeah. the parties have been pivoting very dramatically in terms of who stands for what. And so hmm. the edge cases that really matter tend to lie orthogonal to orthogonal to where the data are, right? Like, I don't know that much about this Gen Z person who moved from here to there. Are they right. really going to vote or which way, you know? Because the parties themselves are kind of moving the goalposts a bit. Exactly. Like a lot, it's uh, one thing that's really interesting is a lot of older white voters who have voted Republican their whole lives were kind of Reagan Republicans and are a little bit turned off by this. And so right. some like, one of the reasons Biden won and one of the reasons he could very well win again is that if you move that cohort by like a half a point margin, that's a huge number of votes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But then in terms of how technologists and how technology thinks about things, there's different, you know, first of all, there's financial aggregators like Act Blue that help you allocate resources, hard dollars to candidates, which is the privileged form of money, as I mentioned, yep. and, and is the most useful. And then there's various forms of civil society organizations that do good work. For example, I mentioned to you Push Black, which is primarily a turnout operation. There are also versions of that that are more about persuasion. So for example, there's an organization called Galvanize. And the word gal is capitalized because it's about white women. It's gotcha. this liberal group that was like, hey guys, you know, a lot of important groups here. We're not trying to minimize it, anybody, but white women just did vote for Trump. So let's talk about it. Right. Yep. And they were in the field when uh, Justice Kavanaugh had his hearings mm. and the Christine Blasey Ford stuff. And so they got this intense exposure to the cross pressures facing, especially white women without college degrees and the pressures they face to conform to the men in their lives and their expectations, but also, you know, how they feel about the parties and where they're going. And it turns out this is a group of people where if you engage with them in a way that helps them feel more empowered and connected, they vote more often with their initial instincts, which are more Democrat. Right. And then you can layer on some partisan messaging onto that. And so you just get a lot of net Democratic votes from an organization that's primarily a 501c4 entity empowering women. But if you're a 501c4 entity, which is you can give large amounts, but they're not disclosed. So it has certain advantages. You know, if the main purpose is to empower women and as a part of it, you're also spending political dollars on Democrats who are pro-women in certain cases, that is another way you can do this that is incredibly powerful, right? right. And that's, that's a, a way of taking existing rules and norms and applying them to a venture capital framework, right? The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you worried? And I know when we, we connected recently pre-Christmas about it, all, kind of the year that awaits us and just stepping back. I mean, we're talking about America, but this is a global thing of uh, whatever it is. 70 de- democracies are going to vote this year. I mean, democracy is small d because Russia is in there. And I'm sure Putin's going to you know, only have 98% of the vote this year. Down year for him. Been a rough year for him. <laughs> But it's something like 2 billion people, which is basically us, India, and then a bunch of other countries are going to be voting this year. And at the same time, as you have AI tools that make it really easy to clone people's voice, to clone people's images, to make fake videos, we just saw all this Taylor Swift stuff. It does feel like there's a kind of this big morass of technological tools that are kind of really breaking out just as we approach this very critical year. Is that something you're even worried about? If so, what? how are you thinking about that? Are you doing anything to prepare for that? When we think about, again, just this kind of the quality of the information ecosystem, especially as we get, you know, as you talk about those 50,000 people, a finely targeted video of Biden falling over or having a Mitch McConnell moment where he just like stops talking and seems to freeze or something that could be like, oh, well, he's too old. He gets a bag of cash that says, like, from Hunter on it. Correct. Whatever, right? Whatever, right? And, like, you can see that something like that, like, you know, pinpoint place to the people that that need to see it, that could be, um, I mean, this is obviously a terrible scenario, but, you know, I don't know if that's, uh, how and if you guys are thinking about that. Yeah, it's it's a huge problem. And there are a lot of groups that are thinking about it. The way in which we think about it is consistent with our investment framework, which is that we are fighting for the Enlightenment era to survive the political era. (laughs) And so we are trying to get humanism and scientific reason and the rule of law to be kind of sustainable and enduring. And part of that, especially the scientific reason part, is what's true. How do you know it's true? And we've had photographs for a couple centuries now and they have been great and in the last couple hundred years i mean this does coincide with a massive leap forward in human prosperity and enlightenment last couple hundred years we have had artifacts that we all agreed were representations of truth that was great for humans and that period is over so now that we no longer have that period Mm. and so we no longer can all agree Jay Rosen is a professor of journalism at New York University, and he talks about how the real damage is not that you're going to persuade people of things that are false. The real damage is that you will be unable to persuade people of things that are true. Right. Like a a misinformation bomb, so now you don't trust anything. Exactly. But also, what what is the category error? 
And is it an entirely new kind of error or is it just tactically more dangerous? And this is not a new kind of error. We have had misinformation of this type for a long time. So for example, we've had the faked moon landings, right? Yep. We've had the protocols of the elders of Zion, which were invented in the subculture that is now generating a misinformation today in St. Petersburg, right? Those are the same same culture a century later did protocols mm. of the elders of Zion. So there have been plenty of efforts to create misinformation with, you know, Vladimir Putin is only the latest of a long list of these people, uh, not just in Russia, but all over the world who've created misinformation. Many people have believed it. And so we are going to need to restore our trust and our faith in a few rock bottom institutions that we all agree are real. And in the United States, for better or worse, one of the institutions that really matters is our courts. Yeah. In normal times, our, our litigiousness is a pain in the neck. But in this moment, it may be useful that people have spent many, many generations acculturating to the idea that the truth can be found in the courts. That's where disputes are resolved. And so I believe that one of the things that will emerge in the United States is that the courts will be arbiters of truth in ways that will matter for the United States elections. And that in the United States, at least, that people will have a general suspicion of things that have not been validated by the courts. And therefore, these last minute, you know, deep fakes about President Biden or whatever, I don't think people will believe them. But, you know, we'll see. Is there anything you can do technologically or that you guys have invested in or are looking at to kind of like, not necessarily that deep fake example, but just generally trying to kind of maintain or improve the information hygiene? Yeah. So a few things. One, after doing a lot of research and diligence in the space of fighting misinformation, it turns out one of the only things you can do is promote good information. So for example, one of the entities we've invested in is called Good Info. It's run by a woman named Tara McGowan. They run properties called Courier News. They are explicitly political, but they're political in a very factual way. I don't know if you've if you've read What's Our Problem by Tim Urban. No. It's a great book. You know, he talks about how you can be right or left, and you can also be like high brain or low brain. And so y- you can say like this is a political left to center political news organization, and also we are only going to trade in actual facts, mm. right? And so that is a thing that we've invested in that is reaching low information voters or eligible low information voters in the seven swing states, right? What's the uh, preferred delivery mechanism? Is it Facebook? Is it TikTok? Is it, what is it these days? It varies. TikTok is obviously where young people are. Yeah. And I have not really fully gotten my head around how to think about that, given all the other issues around TikTok. So the entities that we've invested in have been much more, they use uh, Facebook, they'll sometimes use other social media platforms. Some of them used to use Twitter, although it's not really that useful anymore. Instagram also, obviously. None of the entities that we've invested in have been uh, TikTok first, but we're, we're sort of actively exploring that now. And how are you feeling right now? This is end of January, so we're 10 months from showtime. Look, I'd rather be us than them. Basically, it's tie ball game entering the fourth quarter. And there are a lot of reasons to believe that this fourth quarter, this year, this last year of Biden's presidency will be a year where Americans start to feel better about the economy, 
where Americans are reminded of the things that they hate most about Trump, where Americans see how much Trump has decompensated, and where elites start to realize exactly how significant it would be if we handed power to that man for another four years. So I think that combination of things makes it favorable for the good guys to win. On the other hand, it's the same combination of things that makes it catastrophic if we don't. So how do you feel? You know, I don't know. The expected value is not changing a lot, although <laughs> its composition is altering. And do you have a sense of what, and just again, stepping back on the technological side of things, you know, Reed is pumping a lot of money into all of this. And I have heard him talk on various podcasts and panels and stuff about, you know, how AI is just a different thing, kind of like the internet, like the ground is shifting beneath our feet. I gather you don't seem particularly like, okay, this is going to be an earthquake for democracy that we're going to have to figure out in the way that the internet was. But is that right? I mean, how are you thinking about it? Yeah. So first of all, if there's any daylight between me and Reed on the importance and significance of AI, which I'm not sure there's, there's much, but if there is, I'm even more extreme than he is in terms of how important it is. The issue that I am just tackling is how much will it matter for the decision-making epistemology of America in these elections this year. Right. That's like the narrow focus. It's absolutely a big deal after that. But it, it is such a big deal that it's not even really worth thinking about because like a year from now, we'll know if that's a world where Donald Trump is back in office or not. Yeah. And I definitely am in the camp that former Wyoming representative Liz Cheney she says that if Trump gets back into office, he's never leaving. I don't see any way that the Constitution's prohibition on a third ter presidential term is actually enforceable with this man and his crowd taking office. It's, um, they are what they are. They're very thuggish, very criminal. So I think the consequences of them getting back into office are, are catastrophic in a way that we're still only beginning to deal with. I mean, obviously, you're very close to Reed, but stepping back and looking at the kind of the tech ecosystem, the other kind of big fish, if you will, the other billionaires, tech billionaires, is this kind of an all hands to the pump type moment? Or, or do you have a sense of kind of that sense of danger you have? Do you feel like that is something other people acknowledge and are like, oh, God, we, you know, we got to figure out we're throwing a bunch of money over here and investing over there and blah, 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 blah. Do you have a, like, what is happening on the ground? This is hard to substantiate, but I have a sense that things are moving, that people are starting to realize what's happening. There had been a lot of hope that yeah. we would not be in this situation. And certainly I hoped that I have believed for a while that those hopes were not realistic. And after, I mean, after New Hampshire, you know, there was still a chance, but after New Hampshire, look, it's going to be Trump versus Biden. When Nikki Haley lost by double digits, right, to Trump in the primary. Yeah, if she'd come close, I mean, look, maybe she baits him into some sort of a moment that breaks him, I don't know. But like, people are starting to realize that it's Trump versus Biden. And in that context, I think there's going to be an all hands moment. I certainly hope so, because the thing is, is that smart investments in the kind of portfolio that we're talking about can absolutely make a difference. 
there are minds that can be changed. This is a thing that we can know. And even in a presidential year, when changed minds are at a premium in terms of changed voting behaviors, like you can still find them. And so I do hope people get off the sidelines. And I'm, I'm feeling like that's starting to happen. You mentioned the de- decision-making epistemology of people. We know that you can actually, with, I don't know, giving people access to good information or different information can actually move people from Trump to Biden or Biden to Trump. You know, it's always like the, this mythical voter that I don't know anybody in my life, but I also live on the West Coast in a little liberal bubble. But like the idea that someone would switch from one side to the other when they're so far, very far apart, seems almost like fantastical. Like, no, that's not, I mean, I'm sure it's happening somewhere, but I don't, you know, it's like, it's hard to imagine. I guess my question is when you are investing in dozens of organizations that are working in all these different facets of the information ecosystem, getting the vote out, getting new media, all this stuff, does it matter? Yeah, for sure it does. It's a great, it's a great point. But um, these swing voters that I mentioned, call it 4 million in the seven battleground states. These people are so-called partisan bystanders. And what that mostly means is that they think both parties are horrible. (laughs) So they will agree with your liberal bubble about how bad the Republicans are. Mm. They will just also think the same about you. Democrats are also (laughs) shit. Also, holy shit, have you seen this thing that they've done or that thing that they've done? And so they're like, both of these options are terrible but I have a civic duty to show up and pick one, right? And again, of necessity, these are people who don't really follow things the way that partisans do. They have a sense of things. They right. are. N- if you have not already made up your mind about which way you're gonna vote in Trump versus Biden, you are gonna take your damn time. <laughs> you are clearly gonna wait until you have to. So you're talking about September, October decisions when everybody's paying attention. So there'll be a new kind of salience. And there are things you can invest in now that will absolutely matter, right? So just as an example, I'll just give you an example, Danny. Yeah. Gen Z in cities, okay? Mm -hmm. So by that, I mean the most dense quartile of census tracts in the seven battleground states, voters aged 18 to 27. Okay. So Gen Z in cities in swing. Yep. They will turn out probably 25 to 30 points less than everybody else. Kids these days. I know, right? Well, the thing is, is, kids all days, right? Like, I know. Always <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. I know. So, but the other thing about them is even though they fucking, they grump about everything, they're not super excited about Joe Biden or Hillary yeah. Clinton or whatever. Like they don't like the centrism that dominates national democratic brand dating back forever, but they vote Democrat because what they don't like is the sort of rural fascism that the Republican Party has become. I mean, the Republican Party is very much about anti-city grievance. And as a result, it stakes very strong claims to a lot of things that urban Gen Z feel strongly about, right? So guns and abortion Mm. and the environment and democracy There are things you can do now that can significantly increase turnout among urban Gen Z. And it's like what we talked about before with push black. It's not directly political. It's like help these people form social bonds with each other. So they're more more likely to come out 
when the early vote festivals come along, right? So there are things that can matter. The numbers are so, 50,000 votes was enough last time and the time before, right? There are plenty of things that we can do that we know will move far more than that. The problem is the other side is doing things too, right? Yep. So. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to reveal like the deep, dark secrets of the Democratic Party. So Joe Biden is old. It's a secret. (laughs) No one knows. Trump is old. Let's just say Biden has a moment three months from now. And it's like, oh, no, he's fallen or he's had a heart attack or whatever. Who's on the sideline? Is it Gavin Newsom? Well, it sort of depends on when it happens. I mean, the most obvious natural succession would be the vice president. Yep. And Vice President Harris has, you know, the same kinds of popularity problems that Biden does, not related to age, but related to the sort of, you know, socialism versus democracy thing. And she's a woman and she's black. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that helps with some constituencies, but it hurts with others. And it's hard to know exactly what would happen. If I could snap my fingers and make something good happen, obviously that would be great, depending on when it happens. I don't know. But remember, like, Joe Biden is from a very long-lived family, and so is Donald Trump, and they both have very high-end health care. Yeah. So there is an edge case that we don't have one or the other of them, but the most likely thing is that's what we're facing, you know? Yeah. So the Kind of the, the race is set. And... Also, the other thing about age, I mean, one of the arguments that we have made, that Reed has made also, is that if you look at Warren Buffett... Berkshire Hathaway had its highest ever quarterly dividend when he turned 83. Mm. And the value of you know, his net worth grew by something like 10x over the subsequent 10 years. Right. Right. And there are certain fields, diplomacy and finance are among them, where age is not a bug, but a feature. It, if you use your age appropriately to cement your values and your frameworks for looking at the world through a bunch of people that you've mentored and an organization and uh, that you're the head of, like, this is actually a pretty good case. Whereas if you, if age is, you know, who knows, like Trump comes off as an alpha and obviously Biden, you know, he, he moves, you know, in more of a shuffle, but Trump is decompensating. When you say de- decompensating, what do you mean? I mean, like, he said his Merry Christmas, it's not even tweet anymore, his truth. Truth social. Yeah, so his truths. Like, on Christmas, his truth was Merry Christmas and may the haters all rot in hell. You know? <laughs> I mean, he's like, he's show like, he's showing up. He's like, like, he was found by a jury to have inserted his fingers into a woman against her will that is defined as rape, and he keeps calling attention to it. He shows yes. up. Right. He can't contain himself, right? So. So what you need to do, this is like no charge for this advice. Thank you. No problem. This is free. Invest in some one of these longevity startups. You know, yes. want to get get one of these God pills. Like Brian. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I like Brian. <laughs> Colonel, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes, right? yes. And we're all good. Hey, Danny, uh, just in case we don't talk again, I want to leave you with one little thought experiment. Please. We funded some groups like uh, Protect Democracy, mm-hmm. Ian Basson, 
that in turn sponsored what they called the Transition Integrity Project, which was a war gaming scenario, you know, red versus blue. It's kind of a contested election. What do you do? And mm. kind of everybody walked out of that being like, wow, red has all the, all the cards. Right. So, you know, in the same spirit, we're trying to elevate people's awareness of what's coming. And I want people to think about if Trump gets into office again, He's sworn in January 20th of 2025. Okay. January 6th of 2026. Okay. He declares Patriot and Victor's Day. And he has a military parade with all of the armed forces there and all of the people that he's appointed, as he's promised to, as Heritage Foundation is helping him do, you know, several levels down, not just the cabinet. This level, actually doesn't sound, down. this doesn't sound outlandish so far, which is terrifying. Thus far, right? I'm just saying like mm -hmm. very straightforwardly things he's promised to do, right? And so he has a victory day parade on January 6, 2026. Like all of this is entirely predictable. And then the people that are leading these various agencies have been recruited from the leadership of the militia organizations and they've been pardoned. Uh, we've, they've been very clear that they're going to pardon people and put them in leadership positions. Right. And so the militias that were there on January 6th of so the original Patriots Day will be back there. Proud boys, et cetera. All of them. Mm -hmm. So you imagine they'll be there and you have all of these armed forces there, you know, the prison guards and all these others. And the House and Senate will have the House sergeant at arms. What if someone brings a noose? Mm. Again, just things that have happened already and they mm. break in. And what if someone get, gets threatened? Like, what do we do? Like, we are on the cusp of handing that kind of power to that man in that movement. I do think, you know, when, when was it last month when he was referring to people as vermin, which is like straight from Mein Kampf? And at a certain point, you're going to have to be, you have to a little bit like, okay, well, if the person's telling you who they are, then you have to believe them, It's you know. Yeah, he has promised to send federal troops into American cities over the objections of their mayors and governors to root out vermin. Seems pretty straightforward. <sighs> pretty clear. God, on that happy note. 2024, God help us. <laughs> God, that's right. <laughs> And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Dimitri for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, uh, for telling your friends and neighbors about this very fine podcast. And hopefully we'll see, you know, the world doesn't fall apart this year. I didn't come out of the conversation feeling great about our prospects, but we shall see. We live in hope. Anyhow, thank you for listening. You can find me in the Times. Uh, I'll be writing this weekend. Uh, you can find me online at thetimes.co.uk. And I will be back next week with more podcast goodness for your listening ears. Until then, have a fabulous week, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.